Welcome to Hypnotic History, the podcast where we explore topics related to everyday life in 20th century America and probably mispronounce a bunch of names. Speaking of names, I'm Ashley. And I'm Logan. And today we're talking about coffee. I am an unapologetic instant coffee drinker. No shame. <laughs> well, there's, I, there's no judgment. As long as you enjoy your coffee, there's no wrong way to have coffee. Well, it's so easy. Like in the morning when I can't function, it's just, I mean, this isn't an ad for instant coffee, but in the morning, I don't have to do a lot to make it. If I'm in the office, I don't have to have filters or grounds. It's just really easy. Uh, but for some reason, people have a lot of judgment about instant coffee. No shame. As long as you as long as you enjoy it, more power to you. Well, you're much more into coffee than I am. You want to talk but, about how you make your uh, special? Cup? I do. I do one of two ways. During the week, on a work day, I use a Keurig with uh, ground coffee and a reusable K cup filter. Yay environment! And then on the weekends, when I can have more time, I use the pour over method. Method uh, where you ha- grind up the beans. And then uh, do a ratio of grounds to water and, and pour it over through a filter. And I, I really like that system. Yeah, and you are very scientific when you make your coffee. You measure it out. I know that you recently watched one of our friends make coffee and you said, I didn't say anything, but he had an uneven bed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I blame James Hoffman for that. <laughs> and Morgan drinks coffee. And Morgan drinks coffee, yeah. yes, both of them. Uh, well, in the 20th century, I hate to tell you this because I know you're going to be horrified, but at the turn of the 20th century, most people were making their coffee by boiling it. That's the uh, cowboy method. That's, yes. Yeah, you that's... put it in a sock. Oh, do I, do I need to share that story? Maybe. Okay. Okay. So for listeners, uh, I was in Boy Scouts and we had gone to a high adventure trip that was a backpacking event. And each day you backpacked pretty short distance, maybe two, three miles to a different encampment. And at each place there was a different activity and there were staff members there. And one of the cool things was they prepared a cleanup water for you they'd heat up all the uh, boil the water but they would also prepare coffee for the adults and i wasn't an adult yet and i hadn't started drinking coffee but we stopped at one place and the adults got their coffee and they all were kind of like something's wrong but they didn't want to outright like you know hospitality they didn't want to outright tell the people the coffee sucked so they were kind of like hey uh how y'all doing this and one of the workers said, well, the person that knew what they were doing left, and we've just kind of guessed. And no joke, they had a tube sock that they had poured grounds into and then knotted and put it at the bottom of the pot <laughs> and poured in water and, and brought it to a boil. And so our scoutmaster, Doug, was like, well, here, let me help you out, boys. And uh, he showed them the what I'm calling the cowboy method, where you literally just pour the grounds in and boil it. And then let it set, and the grounds will drift to the bottom, but you're going to get grounds in your coffee when you pour it out no matter what. Like, there's, it's going to be a little bit. Yeah, and something else that I have read about boiling coffee is it has the propensity to make the coffee uh, bitter. Uh, I've not noticed that. Uh, it's, for me, it's kind of similar to a French press, and it's kind of oily. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a different taste to it. Uh, so, yeah, listeners, okay. sound off in the comments on the correct way to have coffee. <laughs> Uh, Well, there was another form of coffee making that started to take off in the first half of the 20th century, and that was the use of a percolator. There you go, yes. Yeah, Uh, but percolators are kind of uh, hard to talk about because they use the word percolate, which literally means you are letting the liquid pass through a filter, Um, and that's not really what percolators do. Uh, In Europe, there was a woman named Melita Benz, and if her name sounds familiar, it's because of Melita Coffee. Uh, That is the same person. In 1906, she created a percolator that was a tin can. She had poked holes in it, and then she added a filter. And so that is literal percolation and more like what we would think of as drip coffee. Yes. But in the United States, our percolators are actually uh, more akin to... If you're familiar with a mocha pot, they work in sort of a similar yes. way. There is a chamber running through the middle, and as the water boils, it goes up through the chamber and spurts out kind of like an oil rig, and the water bathes the coffee repeatedly. And that's what we call a percolate, most percolators in the United States, and those were very popular in the early 20th century. Uh, that's the that's the method I remember the adults fixing their coffee in scouts on camping trips. And I think Dad had a little percolating. I thought it was cool because the top has a little small glass gl- uh, globe type thing. Mm-hmm. And that's how you could kind of know that it's heated up because the water would bubble up through there. And then it would you know get brown from passing through so much on the grounds. Uh, But I've heard that's not a great method for coffee. (laughs) Uh, Like boiling coffee, I read that percolators tend to over-extract the coffee and make it bitter. That that sounds about right. But it's a cool method to watch. Well, speaking of cool methods to watch, uh, that leads me to another method of coffee making, which is using a device called a siphon coffee maker, which is also sometimes called a vacuum coffee maker. I want one. I know. I kind of want one, too. I can't believe that they have not sparked in popularity, because if you look at pictures of them, they're just designed in a way that's aesthetically pleasing. And then to watch them work, I would imagine, uh, would be kind of interesting. I kind of want one, too. It's very mesmerizing to watch the process. Yeah. Uh, And it works just the way it sounds. There are two chambers As the water boils, it moves into the chamber with the coffee, but uh, the process creates sort of a partial vacuum um, that literally siphons the water back. So it kind of moves it through the coffee and back into the original chamber. And there is a filter, right? Oh, I I did not see a filter. Well, that blocks the grounds from coming back with the water. Um, There is a siphon tube. Okay. In the one that I looked at, there was a siphon tube. There may be a filter that I haven't seen. But it's such a cool way to do it. Would you like to play a game with me? Let's play a game. All right. I'm going to name some coffee events, and I want you to see if you can guess what year they happened. Okay. All right. The first decaf coffee was created. Uh, let's say... It's 1917. It is early in the century, but the year is actually 1906. Oh. 
Yeah. Uh, it was invented by German Ludwig Roselius. He believed that caffeine led to his father's death, which spurred him to figure out a way to create decaf coffee. Uh, apparently, there were a few types of coffee bean that did not naturally have caffeine, but they were largely considered undrinkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can, yeah. So people had to figure out another way to make it. Um, and he created the first decaf coffee by superheating green coffee beans and then soaking them in a solvent. And that's how he extracted the caffeine. And this discovery led to decaf brands like, I'm going to say this wrong, but I'll do the best I can. Coffee hog. Coffee hog. H-A-G. Coffee hog. Not pig. (laughs) Sanka. I'm familiar with Sanka. Me too. And decafa. When was the first instant coffee sold in the United States? First instant coffee, let's go 1919? Just a little bit earlier than that. Uh, It was in 1909, and it was sold by George Washington. Look at my man, George Washington, still (laughs) still making contributions in retirement. This George Washington, I find it interesting, wherever you read about him... There's typically a mention that some people believe he was descended from the president, George Washington, but he was actually Belgian and he immigrated to the United States in 1897. So I don't know if George Washington uh, palled around Europe a lot. I don't know what the story is. I choose to believe that he did. And this is a descendant. And he was destined to make awesome coffee. Destined to make awesome coffee. Yeah. When was vacuum-sealed coffee invented? Oh, let's say, uh, see, I keep tying these to World War I and World War II because that usually breeds innovation. Uh, vacuum-sealed coffee, let's go 43. It was actually much earlier than that. Oh. Yeah. And this one's a little bit tricky because we're talking about the 20th century, and the year for this one is actually just right on the cusp. It's 1899. Oh, man. Yeah. In 1899, the Hills Brothers met the Norton Brothers, where they learned about the technology of vacuum sealing, and they wanted to use it for their coffee. So they arranged to hold exclusive rights to that technology along the Pacific Coast, which is where they sold their coffee, for one year. And they used it in their advertising, too. They would say, keep fresh forever if seal is unbroken, which I'm not quite sure that's scientifically accurate. There's a little wiggle room. They were probably banking on no one challenging that point. Yeah, no one testing that theory. (laughs) (laughs) When was Nescafe instant coffee introduced to the United States? 1956. 1939. Oh, Now, it existed in Europe before that, but in the United States, Nescafe Instant Coffee was introduced in 1939, and they created their instant coffee in a different way. Before this, instant coffee was made by boiling coffee down to crystals in a drum, but Nescafe sprayed coffee into heated towers and created a powder. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of neat. When was the espresso machine invented? Oh, I just watched a video on this a couple months ago. Uh, man. I'm going to say the 20s, 1926. 
1926 would be more about when the United States started being introduced to espresso oh. machines, uh, but they were actually invented in 1901 uh, by an Italian named Luigi Bezzera. But going into the 1930s, they started popping up more and more in the United States if you went to Italian establishments. Well, we talked about vacuum sealing just a moment ago, but I have another question about it. Okay. When did a company other than the Hills Brothers use a vacuum seal? Vacuum seal, when? Uh, do I get to be, can I be reminded when the vacuum sealing showed up? 1899. Uh, let's say 1909. Very close. 1913. Ooh. Uh, and keep in mind that they only had an agreement to use it for one year exclusively. So people could have started using vacuum seals way before this. Uh, but it wasn't until 1930 or 1913 when M.J. Brandenstein, also known as M.J.B. Coffee, started using a vacuum seal. And this was a big game changer for coffee brands because before this, coffee brands tended to be regional because you couldn't keep coffee fresh enough to send it long distances. But now we had vacuum seal technology, more and more coffee brands started pushing to become national. And this is when you start seeing a lot more of uh, corporatization of coffee. Uh, also because by this time, we started seeing the deaths of the first generation of coffee founders. So later generations were inheriting the business. Businesses were combining uh, and forming larger companies, and they started pushing across the nation. So we no longer had as many regional brands. And a big part of that was the invention of the vacuum seal. So during the first half of the 20th century, when these brands were becoming more ambitious and trying to garner more customers, they employed a variety of interesting marketing techniques. So I would next like to play a game with you called Is It Real? Okay, am I getting a slogan? Uh, not a slogan, but a marketing tactic. Okay. And you tell me whether it was something that a coffee company really did. Okay. <laughs> okay. Glazing coffee beans with egg and sugar. Um, I'm going to say probably yes. This is true. Okay. Uh, around the turn of the century, there were two main coffee brands that did this, Arbuckle and Lion. And they considered each other huge rivals because they were doing the same thing to their coffee beans. And there's an interesting story where one of the salesmen told... Uh, the customers that the lion on their package meant that drinking their coffee would give them a lion's strength. Ooh, a big stretch. <laughs> so an Arbuckle salesman named Moses Drockman countered that their package had an angel <laughs> and that angels were stronger than lions. He boasted that if lion wants to beat my angel, they'll have to put on their label a picture of God himself. And it gives you wings is right there for them. Like that, <laughs> that's right there. They could have used it. That's true. <laughs> they could have totally beat Red Bull to the punch. Well, it didn't matter because they were still successful. Uh, oh. Arbuckle <laughs> did so much better than Lion. Uh, they were considered the original cowboy coffee out west where they were sold. In fact, they were so popular that people would use their coffee crates to make buildings, cradles, and even coffins. Oh, wow. Yeah, 
the original Costco <laughs> Arbuckle crates. All right, how about this one? Giving buyers wedding rings. See, it just sounds dumb enough that it would be a thing. Um, yeah, let's say yes, they, they did that. Yes, they did. Of they um, did. In fact, that was Arbuckle Coffee. And they didn't just give out wedding rings. They had an entire catalog where people could save and redeem their coffee labels. Oh, that's, oh, that's great. I know. They sold a variety of things. They sold curtains, razors, clothing. Uh, they even sold guns. I love the idea of pointing to something in the house and being like, that was three months worth of coffee to get that. That was yeah. That's the rifle that coffee bought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's... Uh, and along with all of these goods, the company once claimed that eight thousand wedding rings were redeemed per year. Wow. Yeah. Man, I wonder if I wonder if those are anywhere in a antique thrift store somewhere in a museum floating around, or how they would even be identified. I hope so. Oh, I don't that'd, know. That'd be amazing. How about sponsoring the Miss America pageant? Oh, definitely. Yes. That's false. Oh. However, uh, there is something close to the truth related to that. In the 1930s, the Pan American Coffee Bureau did hold a Miss Iced Coffee pageant because they wanted to promote summer sales of coffee. Missed Iced Coffee. Mm -hmm. Is that the beginning of the basic trend yes <laughs> yeah you don't think of iced coffee being a 1930s trend so that is interesting advertising a picture of a woman lying in bed with the text climax in all caps oh wow uh sure yeah let's go for it that is true i wouldn't make that up for this radio show <laughs> it's a little too uh spicy for me uh mjb's coffee uh it was called climax coffee wow uh, yeah. It lay another interesting thing they did with their ads was they later introduced the word why to the end of every ad, even though it didn't make any sense. Uh, when someone asked why the why, Manny Brandenstein of MJB Coffee said, what's the difference as long as people ask? That makes sales. <laughs> oh, okay, I guess, yeah. Confuse your audience. Yeah. <laughs> why? Why? <laughs> Painting their logo on zoo animals. Ooh. Uh, I want to say no for ethical reasons, so I want to I say no, but I'm worried. Thankfully, you are correct. Oh, good. However, they did paint people. Oh, yeah. well. MJB Coffee, once again. It was probably lead paint, too. <laughs> I hope not, but I, I don't know. That is a possibility. They went to the 1910 boxing match between Jim Jeffries and James Johnson in Reno, Nevada, and painted uh, MJB Coffee or MJB on uh, people who were going to the boxing match. They also went from the train station to the arena and on the ground painted giant footprints interspersed with the word why. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, I think their tactic is to confuse the audience. Yeah. Just, just confuse them. What about making false claims that their coffee encouraged unity during the Civil War? Oh, definitely. This is true. Yes. In an attempt to bolster sales by rebranding themselves as a Southern legacy brand, Maxwell House advertised, quote, over this coffee, the North and South pledged the new brotherhood years ago. But... Well, that's, that's bold. Well, here's the sticker. Maxwell House was founded in 1892. 
<laughs> just a little little off the mark. I have a bonus question related to this. Okay. What famous American supposedly coined the Maxwell House slogan, Good to the Last Drop? Oh, gosh. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Yes! Ooh. How'd you know that? It just seemed like a burly man's man, and he's going to drink coffee, so why not? And he that was his favorite. He, he never went to safari without it. Uh, he is said to have uttered the phrase when he had a cup of Maxwell House while visiting the Hermitage in Nashville in 1907. Very good. But they wouldn't use that as a slogan until several decades later. I still like the coffee that brought the Civil War to an end after the Civil War. So. <laughs> In 1892, they retroactively brought peace. What about starting their own airline? Oh, I want that to be true. Yes, yes, that's true. It is unfortunately not true. Oh. However, like most of the untrue uh, statements, there is a touch of truth to it. Maxwell House had a monoplane that they called the Miss Maxwell House, and it flew across the country promoting the brand. Uh, other coffee brands relied increasingly on airlines as customers and often used that as part of their branding. For example, there was a G. Washington coffee ad that said, every cup a masterpiece aboard these giant 18 passenger planes. Oh, yes. Uh, somebody should have done a hot air balloon. That would have been better than a monoplane. Just let the balloon oh, float across with the logo painted on the side. That is true, but I wonder if a monoplane was just more impressive because planes were new technology. That, that's true. That's the new thing. What do you think about the giant 18-passenger plane? Uh, I'm sure there was probably more legroom for someone like me than on today's modern planes. Oh, I'm sure there was. <laughs> What about marketing coffee by using radio product placement in the same way that we do product placements in like movies and television shows today? Oh, I'm sure they did that. Yes, that is definitely true. I cannot say enough about radio and coffee. During the 20s and especially during the 30s, so many coffee brands and other brands uh, used radio heavily for their marketing. Often they didn't have outright commercials uh, because at the time that was considered gauche. Uh, so they tried to think of clever ways to promote their brands. And it might just be through a sponsorship where you're, uh, they say you are the sponsor or they put your name in the title. Uh, in other places, they did create their own programming and try to insert their brands into the programming. One good example of this is the Maxwell House Showboat. It was a variety show that included dramas that incorporated characters drinking Maxwell House coffee. Of course. <laughs> Every scene. Oh, first, before I go up to the office, I have to have Maxwell Cup. It's an important plot point. And the sound effects for this show were apparently so realistic that there was a time when the script called for the boat to pull into New Orleans and 2,000 people went to the docks in New Orleans to meet the Maxwell House showboat, but it wasn't a real boat. Oh, the disappointment. At this point, I really want to take a break from questions and quizzes just to tell a story, uh, because I need to tell you about another show on the radio sponsored by Chase and Sanborn Coffee. Well, actually, it was sponsored by Standard Brands, who own Chase and Sanborn Coffee. It was called the Major Bose Amateur Hour. 
And it was sort of like Star Search or The Gong Show, if you're familiar with either of those. Amateur entertainment acts would perform and get voted on or off. It was, I guess we have things like that today, too, um, like The Voice. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, but this was just for entertainment acts in general. Uh what I love about this show is the ads guilted customers into buying coffee. The ads would say, in all caps, their chance depends on you. Oh, no. Meaning you need to buy this coffee. If you don't buy this coffee, then we can't have this show where these amateur performers get to have their shot. Oh, no. So if you don't buy our coffee, I guess these you, people just don't have a job. You're ruining their dreams. Exactly. Their chances depend on you. Could be worse. Could be like, Timmy won't get a kidney if you don't go and <laughs> exactly buy enough coffee. Another thing I love about this show is a story about Mae West. So it was taken over by a new host in 1937 because Major Bose, from the title, uh, left the show to go work somewhere else. So it started being hosted by Edgar Bergen, who had a ventriloquist dummy named Charlie McCarthy. One of their guests was Mae West, and she was sort of saucy at the start of the show. As you would expect. Yes. Uh, She told the dummy he was all wood and a yard long and that she'd let him play in her wood pile. For for anyone under the age of 65, Mae West was quite the, uh, I don't know, uh, risque sex symbol. Yes. That, that, yeah, of her time period. So, yeah. I think she's a little spicy even by today's standards. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff she said where it's like, wow, that... That's still a little little hot. Well, after this monologue, or, or I guess conversation with the dummy, she performed a sketch with the show's host, Edgar Bergen, where they were in the Garden of Eden. She was playing Eve, and he was playing the snake. And she was trying to get the snake to help her uh, get past a fence to get to the apple tree. And as a little treat... I have a snippet of this. I don't have the actual recording, but I have the script. And I wondered if you would like to do a little hypnotic history theater with me. All right. We'll give it a go. Okay. So uh, I think that you start. You're the snake. Snake. I'll, I'll do it. Now you're talking. Here, right between those pickets. I'm... I'm I'm stuck. Oh, shake your hips. There, there now, you're through. I I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, but you're doing all right now. Give me a big one. I feel like doing a big apple. Mmm. Oh, nice going, swivel hips. Uh, and scene. <laughs> Apologies for my May West. I'm not known for my impressions. So, needless to say, uh, this was considered a little incendiary at the time. Uh, The Catholic Monitor published an article about it. Of course they did. (laughs) It was titled, May West Pollutes Homes. Oh, yeah. Uh Oh. And there was a professor from Catholic University named Maurice Sheehy. He wrote that May West was, quote, the very personification of sex in its lowest connotation and that she had introduced her own sexual philosophy into the Bible. 
I'm pretty sure if she saw that first part, she would agree. She would say, well, that's what I'm going for. So I don't know if that's going to really damage her brand. Well, these words from this guy's article were apparently read into congressional record. Uh, Is this what kicked off the Hayes Code? (laughs) Maybe. I don't think so. Uh, I think that this was maybe one of many steps. Uh, But the FCC got involved, too. Frank McNinch, who was the head of the Federal Communications Commission, said the skit was offensive to the great mass of right-thinking, clean-minded American citizens. Yep. Um, But all of those right-thinking, clean-minded American citizens must have liked it because the ratings for the show actually increased after the sketch. Everybody, tune in to see what happens next. But not everybody objected to coffee because of Mae West. There were plenty of people who had their own reasons, uh, including people who believed that coffee was a health risk. So if you remember, earlier we talked about a decaf brand called Coffee Hog. Yes, the solvent, which that sounds appealing, soaking (laughs) the beans in some solvent. Which of the following was a warning from Coffee Hog's ads? Caffeine causes coffee heart, caffeine causes coffee brain, or caffeine causes coffee liver? Oh, I was hoping the third one would be coffee lung. (laughs) Uh, Let's go with uh, coffee brain. It actually causes coffee heart. Oh, coffee heart. In addition to causing coffee heart, Coffee Hog also suggested that, quote, Caffeine has as little to do with the goodness of coffee as do the seeds with the goodness of the apple. Uh, (laughs) I'm not a biologist, but I feel like seeds do play a role with apples. And I, mm. I, I think that they're talking about the enjoyment, which I also disagree with, that they're saying caffeine doesn't make you enjoy coffee. So it shouldn't matter that we're decaf. You don't eat the seeds of an apple, do you? Well, then you shouldn't care that caffeine's not in your coffee that's, because it's the same thing. That's still kind of weak. I go back to it gives you coffee heart. <laughs> there were also people who made products other than decaf coffee. They were coffee substitutes. Mm. One of those substitutes was a delicious-sounding drink called Postum. Oh, that's just, mm, I like where this is going. (laughs) Which of the following accurately describes the coffee substitute postum? Roasted chicory, roasted grain, or roasted dandelions? I think during the Civil War they used chicory and dandelions as a substitute. Uh, So let's go with uh, chicory. You are uh, correct that all three have been used as a coffee substitute, but Postum itself was made from roasted grain. Mm, yum. It was created in 1895 by cereal mogul C.W. Post, hence the name Postum. He called coffee a drug drink. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and? <laughs> Postum was a substitute made, made from roasted grain, and it promised to put people on the road to Wellville. Well, I think from that, if we watch that movie, we know that it's not where you want to end up. (laughs) To prove that they would put you on the road to Wellville, they made a lot of outlandish claims. Which of the following was not a claim made by Postomats? So which of the following did they not say? Coffee causes blindness. Caffeine is a similar drug to cocaine, 
morphine, nicotine, and strychnine. Amazing. Or postum cures rheumatism. Which of the following was, or which of those were not said by postum? I think it's the first one because I could totally buy the other two definitely happening. Actually, that was a trick question. Oh, all three, all three. Oh. were used in postum ads. They are all claims made by postum. Hypocritically, C.W. Post himself drank coffee. <laughs> of course he did. And he would even drink coffee publicly. He did oh, not try hey. to hide he it. He was like, yeah, this is terrible. You all don't need, this is spicy. You don't want this. <laughs> As you can imagine, making these sorts of uh, huge claims like coffee is going to make you blind, for example, uh, you can't do that. You actually have to tell the truth in advertising. So in 1905, Collier's Weekly not only dropped Postum ads, but it sued Post for libel. And in court, he had to defend all the claims that his ads made. Well, see, if you drink enough coffee, it's just like cocaine. So if you consume 58 gallons all at once, it'll be the same as having... <laughs> Half an ounce of cocaine or something. I don't know. Well, believe it or not, my favorite claim that he had to address was not one of the ones I already mentioned. It was a testimonial from an ad. The testimonial was supposedly from a person who found relief uh, from being confined to a wheelchair. Oh, and the coffee popped him out of the wheelchair? Uh, no, the coffee was probably what oh, put, him there. put him there. Oh, the coffee put him in the wheelchair. He and switched from coffee po to, to postums, And then he popped right out. Okay, yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> as you might imagine, Post lost the case. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> he was fined $50,000. Oh. Uh, but keep in mind, this was 1905. Okay. He was fined $50,000. However, he did appeal it. And he won the appeal. Of course he did. Yay, corporate America. Uh, despite this, though, despite uh, technically winning in the end, his ads did start to make more modest claims, so I think it did have an effect on him. Uh, <laughs> Had to rein it back. For so. example, now Postum would say, we cure constipation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. That's more believable than popping you out of it clear yeah cured your lameness and which i think is funny that they would choose constipation because that's something coffee does as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> what a weird thing to pick well post wasn't the only person who railed against coffee and caffeine in general there was a chemist named dr harvey wiley uh, and he worked to pass the pure food and drug act of 1906 which do you think he said the national drink should be? Coffee, water, or Coca-Cola? Coca-Cola. That would be interesting, but no, it was oh. water. As you might imagine from a health nut, he thought that water should be the national drink. He was critical of caffeine in general, but he hated Coca-Cola a lot more than he hated coffee. He, I don't know how this logic works, but he said... Even though he wouldn't advise people to drink coffee, he wasn't going to actively crusade against it because it had naturally occurring caffeine. So he went heavily after Coca-Cola because they added the caffeine later. I would just like to say that the water from this time period through the whatever systems, I'm not sure I would trust the water. I would probably... Uh, even if you're health conscious, I'm not sure you want to drink out of those lead pipes. So. <laughs> well, it's interesting you should mention lead because he said, 
I would not give my child coffee or tea any more than I would give him poison. But you want to know uh, the irony of that? Uh, lay it on me. Like Post, Wiley was also a coffee drinker. Yeah. Just guzzling it, yeah. Yeah. It is poison, but I drink it every morning. Of course. It's hard to talk about anything in the 20th century without looking at its connection with war. And so we are going to take a look at coffee as it relates to World War I and World War II. During World War I, many soldiers called coffee a cup of what? I don't think it was Cup of Joe yet, because I don't think we really got the nickname Joe till World War II. So, I don't know. A cup of splendor. I don't know. <laughs> they called it a cup of George. George. Okay. Well, you know, I thought about that. It sounded weird to King me, George too. George of England? Uh, George is in George Washington oh, coffee. Because he's the most famous American. Oh, George Washington coffee. Okay. Yes. Cup of George. In 1918, the Army requisitioned the entire output of George Washington brand instant coffee. Wow. Yeah. Man. One soldier wrote, I am very happy despite the rats, the rain, (laughs) the mud, the draughts, the roar of the cannon, and the scream of shells. It takes only a minute to light my little oil heater and make some George Washington coffee. Every night... I offer up a special petition to the health and well-being of Mr. Washington. Is this a real thing or is this uh, a little bit of, have they, have they polished that a little bit there? Because I'm not going to doubt that coffee gave comfort to soldiers in World War I, but I don't, it's hard for me to believe it gave that much comfort considering the conditions they were in. It does read like an ad, but it was supposedly something someone actually wrote. I also have another quote. There is one gentleman I'm going to look up first after I get through helping whip the Kaiser, and that is George Washington of Brooklyn, the <laughs> oh. soldier's friend. George Washington. I tell you what, that man changing his name to George Washington, best idea ever. <laughs> Brilliant. In addition to instant coffee, the government also sent quite a bit of uh, Holbein coffee. Okay. By the end of the war, the army roasted how many pounds of beans every day? Ooh, ah, 30,000. 750,000 oh, pounds of beans a day. a day. A day. Oh, my goodness. So initially, the military roasted and ground coffee before sending it overseas. But this was not good coffee. It was poorly packaged. It usually arrived stale. So... There was a man named E.F. Holbrook. He was a New Hampshire grocer, and he worked in the quartermaster's department, and he decided that it was his duty to help improve the quality of the coffee the troops were getting. Uh, So he argued to the government that green coffee beans expand after roasting, so it would be more practical to send them fresh instead of roasting and grinding them before sending them, because... I'm guessing he didn't think he'd get very far with the quality argument. That's Yeah, they wouldn't. They'd be like, tough, it's good enough. Yeah. yeah. So he argued that green coffee beans, they take up less room. Uh, we should just send them that way. And the government agreed. So they not only started sending green coffee beans, but they sent him industrial roasters. Wow. Yeah. 
uh, and grinders as well, of course. It's incredible. Leading into World War II, an editorial in the tea and coffee trade journal criticized Nazis and fascists for what? Not drinking enough coffee. Correct. Yeah. Because that is the problem with Nazis. They don't drink coffee. <laughs> actually, that's, that's what it boils down to, yes. I'm not actually sure where Nazis stand on coffee. Um, but I, go you ahead. Know, ironically, they're probably against it, even though they were given their soldiers meth. <laughs> like, it was probably like, no, coffee, that's terrible. But here, take this pervitin and run roughshod over Europe. Well, the editorial doesn't mention uh, Nazis specifically that I could see, but it does mention Mussolini and fascists. Uh, and it says, granted that the Nazis and the fascists are developing a race of supermen, the sure way to make them invincible in the last analysis is to feed them coffee in constantly increasing quantities and not to deny them the one drink that has ever been the indispensable beverage of strong nations. I, I'd be hard pressed to believe that Italy would like poo-poo coffee, though, because like, I think of Italy as being the home of coffee for some reason. Uh, yeah, that is I, a good I point. I can't really imagine them, but I, I could see I could see the German Nazi party being like, no, 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 nobody should drink coffee. That's that's no. And that's the real problem with fascists <laughs> and Nazis yes. is that they should be giving their supermen coffee, at least according to tea and coffee trade. What a weird stance to take. But then again, if you're the tea and coffee trade magazine, I guess that's that's all you can argue. You can't really get into any other political issue. It is a hot take for sure. <laughs> <laughs> During World War II rationing, Jewel Coffee claimed that you could get up to how many cups per pound of coffee? Ooh, probably more than you should. Yes. Uh, <laughs> 30 cups per pound. 60. Ooh. That's, that's a stretch. There were also many articles published uh, with methods for making diluted coffee. The president, Roosevelt, suggested people use their coffee grounds twice. And some newspapers printed ways to make coffee, but not really coffee, out of ingredients like malt, chickpeas, barley, and molasses. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know if you're going to circle back to this, but the dandelion and the hick chicory. Yes. Actually, I, I've seen some YouTube videos where people have done that, and they've said it's pretty like it's it's not coffee because only coffee is mm -hmm. coffee but those substitutes you can almost fool yourself a little bit better uh, well along those lines postum by the way did very well at this time well yeah because that we couldn't get coffee so we yes gotta drink the barley coffee Ugh. i guess or whatever that was Ugh. Ugh. army troops turned what into roasters their helmets That'd be interesting, but it's actually gasoline drums. Uh, okay. You would have to clean those suckers so say, well. Really, that's interesting. Yeah. Some soldiers who received instant coffee resorted to using what to warm their cups? Uh, the, the rifles. Uh, their. Ooh, that'd be interesting uh, too. Let's see, warm the cup of coffee. Where you the engine block or? Uh, These are uh, really creative answers. I think you would have done well. Um, but the real answer is actually matches. Oh, matches. Uh, okay. They if they didn't have some sort of a rig um, to 
simulate a stovetop, they would attempt to warm their cups with matches, which, as you might imagine, uh, did not work very well. Yeah. Uh, so many people actually just drank theirs cold. But because they had instant coffee, by and large, uh, they were still able to make coffee. It probably just wasn't very good. Yeah. World War II soldiers started referring to cups of coffee as cups of... It's got to be Cup of Joe. Yes. That's, yeah. Do you know where Joe comes from? G, uh, G.I. Joe. Yeah, very yeah. good. They also called coffee Java, silt, bilge, sludge, mud, or shot in the arm. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. Sludge, I like that one. Coffee was extremely popular despite the rationing during the wars, and despite its rising popularity with Americans drinking 19.8 pounds of coffee per capita in 1946... Coffee sellers, you would think they would be over the moon, but they were not sitting easy. Do you know why? Uh, where they were getting the coffee beans from? Or, I, I don't know. Soft drinks. Oh, soft drinks. Soft drinks were gaining popularity, and the thousands upon thousands of captive uh, consumers that they had in the military, you know, guzzling coffee morning, noon, and night, were also drinking soft drinks. Uh, Companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi were working to get soldiers hooked on their drink as well. Coca-Cola even gained an exemption from sugar rationing for drinks bottled for the military. Oh, clever. And Pepsi created servicemen centers that offered free Pepsi, cheap food, and interestingly, free pants pressing. And that was the first time that someone uttered the phrase, is Pepsi okay? Is Pepsi okay? okay. (laughs) You know, the pants pressing, this was military, right? Yes. Uh uh, The the pants pressing, I could see that being a big deal because you've got to take care of your laundry and everything. And that's like, that would be one chore they wouldn't have to worry about. I wonder how that uh, works, though. You enter the Pepsi Center, you take off take, your pants. You probably bring the bring the pants, and that while, makes a lot worse. While sense. you're enjoying Pepsi, they're being pressed. Yeah, That's probably. But competition with soft drinks wasn't unique to World War II. In 1936, Business Week had an article that claimed in the South, Coca-Cola is sometimes a breakfast drink. And now the practice of a Coke and a cruller in the morning is invading New York. Does this sound like something that really happened to you? That, uh, I can't see that. Like, I just can't see the old men of the town sitting at the Hardee's having a Coke in the morning with their biscuit. I just... It, it's it's got to be coffee. It, that sounds kind of suspicious to co- me, too. Co- coffee's <laughs> in the morning. Like, coffee's a morning drink. There is so much to say about coffee in the 20th century that we're actually going to end this episode right here. But you can join us next week for Coffee Part 2, where we'll explore the thread of soda, mid-century youth's waning interest in coffee, and the later rise of the chain coffee shops we know today. Hypnotic History is researched and written by me, Ashley Skidmore, with music and editing by the indomitable Andrew Logan Skidmore. Follow us on Instagram by searching for hypnotic.history or by clicking the link in the episode description. Until next week, listeners, peace and love.